This is the Woodland Hills Family Church Podcast. Our desire is to inspire you and your family to become fully devoted followers of Christ. Thank you for listening, and we hope that you enjoy today's message. Part of Summer Family Reunion is inviting back friends to our church to speak, and today is one of our favorites, Renee Schlepfer. If you're excited for Renee to be here, give him a warm Woodland Hills welcome. And... He pastors Twin Lakes Church in Santa Cruz, California, and I realize you're our only California guest speaker we have. I I can't think of another one we've had, and here's how I knew he'd fit in. I told him last week, you're like my third favorite speaker this summer that we're bringing in. And he responded with, and Woodland Hills is in my top 100 churches. So help me welcome Renee to Woodland Hills Family Church. God bless you, man. Uh, We are so stoked to be here. I, we love, my wife Lori and I love coming to Woodland Hills, uh, every single, uh, summer. It really is our family. The, the word family belongs in your church name because it just feels like one big family and but there's always something new here. I have never been to Woodland Hills before when you've had a choir on stage. How good did they sound this morning? It was amazing. And, uh, I love your church and I really love your pastor. I think Probably most of you understand this, but you are blessed as a church with truly somebody that I think, hang on, hang on, hang on, wait a second, because I just want you to know he truly is one of the most gifted communicators in America, and you have him as your pastor right here. So now you can thank Ted. That's true. That's true. Hey, a quick family update. Here's my wife, Lori, and our five grandkids now. This is Emmett. He's two, and Danny is four, and Freddie is six. And then we have two one-year-old granddaughters. That's Willa and Amelia. And we also have some adult children, but really, who cares? We live in... um We live in Santa Cruz, California, and if you're not from California... I understand. You probably imagine all Californians are, you know, long-haired, pot-smoking, tie-dye, t-shirt-wearing surfers who wear flip-flops to funerals, follow the Grateful Dead and VW vans, vote communist, and live in redwood tree houses. That is... That's actually not true of most of California, but I just described our pastoral staff. And that's not far wrong. I heard somebody say, somebody who was visiting Santa Cruz said, man, Santa Cruz makes Berkeley look like a Republican Party convention. And that's true. So Branson's a little different for us. We do not pass Ricky Bobby's pit stop on the way to church, but we love it here. We really do. Uh, when I prayed about what to share today, I thought, I really want to go back to the heart of our faith. Like if I had one message left to preach to y'all here at Woodland Hills Family Church. What would I preach? And it would be what I'm going to talk about today. But let me get into this with a quiz. Are you ready for this? I'm going to show you some photographs of singers. And I'm going to ask you what every single one of these singers or groups has in common. Despite, Besides the fact, of course, that they're singers. Are you ready? Here we go. Elvis, Aretha, Johnny Cash... Andrea Bocelli, Diana Ross, Whitney Houston, Ray Charles, Sarah McLaughlin, Willie Nelson, Rod Stewart, The Lemonheads, Leanne Rimes, Al Green, Destiny's Child, Judy Collins, Dolly Parton, U2, and The Haygoods. What do they all have in common? 
They have all sung great renditions of amazing grace. The most popular song ever written in human history. It's on at least 11,000 different albums on Apple Music right now. That's pretty good for a song first written 251 years ago. Uh, you probably know uh, some of the story behind this song, but I want to add some detail to the story today that you probably have never heard before, frankly, because some of it might be a little uh, PG-13 rated to share in church. So here we go. It was written by probably the unlikeliest person to ever write a church hymn, John Newton. Now, most people know that he was a sailor in the 1700s, but here is what you may not know. His songwriting career, you could say, began when on board his first ship, and he wrote obscene songs about his captain, which the crew loved to loudly sing, and this got him in trouble, of course, with the captain. Uh, the captain said Newton was the most profane sailor he had ever met. And if you know sailors, that is saying something. As the captain put it, Newton exceeded the limits of verbal debauchery. John Newton. Most people uh, know that he wrote Amazing Grace, but they do not know this background. He was an angry young man. He called himself a radical atheist. He made it a goal to deconvert as many believers as possible. But his anger and his personality also really made him, well, frankly, a jerk. And eventually he so annoyed even his own crew that they kicked him off the ship in Sierra Leone, Africa at the age of 20, where Newton actually became a slave himself. He was uh, sex trafficked as a young man with all of the, the, the most horrible things that that implies for not for a month, not for six months, but for three years. Now, you'd think that that experience would cause him to empathize with people in slavery. Instead, it threw him far in the other direction. It caused him to just hate humanity. When he finally escaped after three years, he became the captain of several slave ships. And he said he no longer was capable of feeling empathy for any human being. In fact, he said, had my influence been equal to my wishes, I would have carried all the human race with me. In other words, he would have sold you into slavery if he could have. And then in 1748, something happens that changes his life. He gets caught in a killer storm. Hurricane level. He was aiming for Liverpool, England as his port of call when the storm hit. And after days of it, he's blown completely off course. He thinks he and his entire crew are just going to perish on the open sea. And with both hands fastened on the wheel, he prays the first prayer he has ever prayed in his life. Lord, have mercy on me. Now remember, he is an atheist at this point, so this is a last-ditch effort. Well, 11 hours 
later, the ship limps into Donegal, Ireland. And you'd think that he would be relieved and grateful and immediately become a follower of Jesus after that prayer. Instead, he says he was very, very confused. And this is what confused him. And it makes sense if you think about it. He said, if there is really a God, you know, people ask him, well, oh, did did the answer to the prayer convince you that there was a God? No. Why not? Because if there's a God and if he's interested at all in justice, he would have let me die. If there's a God in heaven, he would never have saved somebody like me. And so he's very confused and he picks up a Bible. And instead of just mocking it, he starts to read what it actually says and very slowly converts to Christianity. Eventually he becomes a pastor of his own church. And in 1772, he wrote this songbook for his own congregation to sing. And the hymn that he wrote for New Year's Day, 1773, we now know as Amazing Grace. So, knowing his story, can you now feel the emotion behind these words? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. He was a wretch in every way. He was wounded and abused and manipulated, and he wounded, abused, and manipulated other people. Wretch like me. I once was lost, lost spiritually and literally lost physically on the open ocean. But now I'm found. I was so blind. But now I see. Well, today, what we're going to do is to look at the 10 verses in the Bible that inspired that song. I call this message truly amazing grace. If you have your Bibles with you or a Bible app, open them up to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. If you are looking for a bump in your joy level today as a believer, you feel like my my faith has gone stale somehow. I need my zip back. Or maybe you're new to all this and you're wondering what this Jesus thing is all about. I want to show you exactly what John Newton thought was so amazing, yet what many Christians just don't get. It's very simple. Four amazing truths. First, I am saved from death. Say that out loud with me. I am saved from death. Watch this. Verse one of Ephesians chapter two. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Okay, a lot to unpack in those verses, but with the time we have, I just want to focus on the main point here. The words were dead. Say you were dead out loud with me. You were dead. You know, I found that the people in my ministry who seem to understand this concept the best are people in recovery. Because this is the admission in the first of the 12 steps. We admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. And so there was nowhere to turn but God. And this verse is saying that is the truth for all of us. Just like a dead man 
literally cannot lift a finger to help himself. We were dead in our sins. We couldn't just snap out of this. Now watch this. This is very important. Next verse, Paul says, All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. So the key phrase here is all of us. Say that out loud with me. All of us. Paul is talking about the shared experience of our humanity. Say all of us again. All of us do stuff we know we shouldn't do. All of us hurt people we love. All of us have times that we say or do things that seem to be the exact opposite of what we say we value. Say it again. All of us. This means no one is better than anybody else. And no one is worse than anybody else. So don't look down on anybody else. We are all alike. We are all sinners, all in need of God. I am saved from death. In love. Could you say that out loud with me? I am saved from death in love. Verse 4. But because of his great love for us, God. In other words, you know, God didn't do this grudgingly. God loves you so much and he loved John Newton so much. That's why God could have, yes, God's a God of justice, but God is love. And so because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ. This is important because the cure for death isn't kind of more rules. You know, once I saw somebody who was saved from drowning, this was just last year, I was on the beach in Santa Cruz and I saw somebody, a father and a son who were drowning in the waves. And there's lifeguards on the beach and there's a harbor patrol boat right next door. And I got to tell you something. They did not stand there on the beach and yell at the people who were drowning. Hey, try harder. Swim faster like this. Swim like this. Here's a book on swimming. Good luck. Learn from it. And when we were as good as dead, God didn't stand on the shore and throw us tablets with the Ten Commandments only. Boom. Good luck. Hope they bring you back to life. No, the law was there for a purpose, but what God did ultimately was dive into the waves and drag us all the way to shore. We were dead, but he made us alive in Christ. Amen? Amen. You know, here's here's the problem. (laughs) We religious people can come across like this to our culture. Shape up. Stop being so dead. You stupid dead people. Here's some rules. You're not even trying to read them. Dead people don't need regulation. Dead people need resurrection. And this says when we were dead, God made us alive in Christ. Even, even when we were dead in our transgressions. And this is what so amazed John Newton. I I just love this. John Newton, you know, God did not save like a former slave captain who had changed his ways. He did not save a good guy. He saved a wretch. Before his prayer, Lord have mercy, John Newton hadn't stopped doing any of his bad stuff. 
All he did was ask for mercy, and he got it. And this is what blew John Newton's mind about grace. This is why he was so amazed about grace, that he was saved when he was a wretch. God made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. And, of course, what this means is you don't need to clean up your act first. That's counterintuitive, isn't it? But this can become a barrier between people and really finding God's transforming grace. Maybe somebody invited you to church this weekend or you're joining us online and you think to yourself, but I've done things I'm ashamed of. I don't have a church background. I don't fit in. I'm not like the others. I don't know much about this. I don't understand it all. I'm not a good church person. And Paul is like, yeah, exactly. No one deserves it. No one gets in because they're a good person. And you do fit in perfectly because guess what? All of us are the same. All of us, all of us are saved from death. In love, by grace. And here is where it really starts soaring. Paul just goes off on a riff here, rest of verse 5. It is by grace you have been saved. Grace is such an important theme in the Bible. Amazing grace is in the title of the song as we know it. So I think it's pretty important that we define grace. What is grace? I've heard some very unbiblical definitions of it. In the original Greek language of the New Testament, the word charis is the word for grace. It's the word that we get our word charity from. It originally meant favor, as in a gift with no strings attached. No strings whatsoever. Unearned, unmerited, undeserved. Somebody said in the Bible, grace is the free and benevolent favor of God. I got a question for you. Is that the picture that most people kind of in the world have of what we're all about? Yeah, you know what? The main point of Christians these days is that we all need to be saved, but it's a gift with no strings attached. It's unmerited, undeserved, unearned, and it's a free and benevolent favor of a God who absolutely just loves us. I don't think that's how our message often comes across, but more on that in a second. Because Paul's on a roll here. It is by grace you've been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. And watch this. Seven. Verse seven. In the order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. What this means is for all eternity, we are going to shine as examples of God's amazing, transforming grace. Why? Verse 8. Here it is again. For it is by grace you've been saved, through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works. So no one can boast. I mean, Paul makes the same point about four times in this one sentence. By grace, not yourselves, it's a gift, not by works, so no one can boast. Nobody can say, yeah, I was good enough. Nobody can say, I never missed church, so God saved me. Nobody can say, I chanted enough times. Nobody can say, I was baptized so many times, I was deemed worthy. You know, I tell our people, we do beach baptisms. I I tell them, you can be baptized at the beach until you know every single fish in the ocean by name, but that is not what saves you. It is a 100% the gift of God. We don't do a thing. We couldn't. We were dead. 
I was at an open casket funeral the other day, and the people said a lot of great things about the body in that casket. And you know what? He never blushed. He never blinked. Why not? He was dead. We couldn't save ourselves. So God stepped in and saved us. How many, raise your hands if you are super glad that we don't get to heaven on our own works. Anybody happy about that? I got to tell you something, though. Somehow this radical message gets watered down and lost in all of the noise. Survey in 2020 asked thousands of people, do you believe that a person qualifies for heaven by doing or being good? Now, you'd probably expect that that a lot of people in broader culture would say, yeah, yeah, that's kind of American folk religion. Listen to this. This is going to blow your mind. Of those who identified as Christians, 52% agreed with that statement. The majority of Christians think the Bible teaches the exact opposite of the point Paul has made about a half a dozen times in this one section. That's a problem. And you know why? Because if you believe heaven is a meritocracy, the people who go to heaven somehow deserve it. That's going to take you in one of two directions. Arrogance, because, you know, you think you do deserve it. And you look down on the other people who who you feel like don't deserve it. And you get real judgy, those people. Or despair, because you don't think you deserve it and you think you may never deserve it. And in my observation as a pastor, you might live your whole life here, but you will end up here if you don't understand what the gospel says about grace. Two weeks ago, I was in a nursing home with an elderly woman on her deathbed, raised in church, but she was very worried. I hope I've been good enough. I haven't been perfect. And I read her several verses from the Bible, including these very verses that we've been studying today. And I said, Edna, when you get worried, I want you to think of Jesus holding your hand, just as I am right now. And he is speaking these words of assurance to you. It is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And that's the gift of God, not of works. And her posture shifted, and I held her hand until she fell peacefully asleep. And her son told me the next day that her whole demeanor had changed, relaxed and joyful. I'll tell you something. If only for that time in your life, which all of us are going to face at some point, right? It is really worth believing this. But this will also change every single moment of your life until that day. One day I met Robert Emmons. He's a researcher at UC Davis. His whole life project has been researching happiness. What makes human beings happy? So it was a privilege being able to meet him face to face. And I said, Dr. Emmons, I know you've done a lot of academic research, but you got to dumb it down for me. One sentence. What's the difference between happy and unhappy people? You want to know what he said? Decades of academic research. He said, unhappy people are entitled I deserve everything I have. And in fact, I should have more. And I'm mad that I don't have more. Happy people are just grateful. He said they see the world as everything I have is such a gift. Everything around them. It's all about God's 
grace. You see, this is the effect of the gospel. And maybe you've never heard it put this way before, but there couldn't be a clearer way to put it. So how do I receive it? Well, notice the phrase in this verse, through faith. And that doesn't mean you have to like gin up spiritual feelings and it doesn't mean that you have to have some kind of emotional experience. It doesn't mean you have to understand every single nuance of Christian theology. What faith means is you're putting your trust in someone. You're saying, knowing the character of Jesus, I choose to put my trust in Jesus. With all of my wounds, all of my hurts, all of my doubts, all of my sins, I'm still putting my trust in Jesus. That in love, by grace, he saved me from death. It's a free gift. Now, it can be really hard to receive a free gift. Once my friend Kelly and I went to Disneyland, and uh, somebody who works at Disney Studios gave us a pass allowing four people to get into Disneyland for free. The only thing was they had to walk in together. So we had two extra slots. It was just me and Kelly. So we thought, let's make somebody's day. And right in front of these gates to Disneyland, we walked up to a couple and said, hang on before you buy your tickets. We have free tickets for you. All you have to do is walk through the turnstile with us and it's all free. Now, what do you think they said? Get lost. They said, I'm, I'm not making this. They said, what kind of fools do you take us for? And they went off and paid $1,000 or whatever it costs to get into Disneyland these days. So we walk up to a woman, a little less confident this time. Ma'am, would you care for a free ticket to, to Disneyland? And you know what she said? I'm not making this up. I don't want to listen to your timeshare sales pitch. We walked up to at least half a dozen different people. Every one of them said some version of, no thanks, you weirdos, and walked away. And we started wondering, what, what's going on? Is it, is it us? And finally, we walked up to a young family that did not, based on outward appearances, appear to be very well off. And they start to walk away. But then they stopped and said, well, okay. Still not 100% sure, right? So the parents pay for the two little kids, and they walked through the gate with us. And not till we were on the other side of the turnstile did the mom start crying and turns to us with tears in her eyes and says, thank you so much for this gift. And we saw them later on in the day, and she runs up and thanks us, apologizing. I'm so sorry. At first, I thought you were a con man. <laughs> and I turned to my friend Kelly, and I said, I am fully expecting to hear that from a few people in heaven. Right? <laughs> Renee, I thought you were a con man, but here we are, you know? It is just so hard for people to believe that something super cool could be free. But the Bible says, here is the truth. And I want you to say these things out loud with me. Here we go. I am saved from death in love by grace. And here's the fourth one. Let's say this out loud. For purpose. Final verse. Verse 10. I love this. For we are God's handiwork. And I want to tell you a little bit more about that uh, phrase, handiwork, in just a second. Created in Christ Jesus to do good works. We're not saved by good works, but we are saved for good works. Now look at this great line, which God prepared in advance for you to do. Is that not mind-blowing? It's all a setup. That means it's no accident 
when your elderly neighbor calls you up and says, I need a ride to the doctors, prepared in advance for you. It's no accident when you think, you know, I want to, I want to bring a meal over to that sick, sick person down my street. It's no accident when Woodland Hills has a mission trip that requires somebody with your exact set of skills. It's no accident when you kind of get that sense, I, I need to bake some cookies and bring them over to my friend for a chat. Especially not if that friend is me. That's always the Lord's will for you. But here's what I'm saying. I believe in design, divine appointments. God prepared those things in advance for you. So be ready, eyes open. The point is this, grace is not ours to earn, but it is ours to give. Does that make sense? Now watch this. Here's where I want to zero in on that word, handiwork. This is, this is your, I, I think you're going to love this, because I had not seen this before myself. I'd read this verse a million times, but until I started studying this a couple of weeks ago, I hadn't, I hadn't noticed this. The Greek word here for handiwork is poema. That's where we get our English word poem from. But in the original Greek, it's used not only for poetry, it's also used for paintings and gourmet meals and beautiful buildings. It just means a work of art by a real artisan, a handcrafted work of art. Now, check this out. This is the part, I knew that. Here's the part that blew my mind that I did not know. Are you ready for this? This word is only used two times in the whole Bible. Now, just focus on this. Let me show you the only other time it's used in the Bible. Romans 1.20. From the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, like his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly observed in what he made. So that phrase translated what he made is actually one word in the Greek, the word poema. In other words, in the beginning... God wrote a poem in creation telling us about himself. Mountains, what do they show about the nature of God? Majesty. Coral reefs, what do they show about God? The creativity of God. Stars, the power of God. You probably felt it yourself at places like the Grand Canyon. But there is something about God that nature in all of its majesty cannot show. His grace. And for that, there's you. You are like the Grand Canyon of grace. Not because of what you do, but what's been done to you. You show God's grace to a watching universe. You're the object of his creativity. God is the artist and you are his artistic triumph. Because just like God did for John Newton, he takes all your mistakes and tragedies and hurts and sins and weaves them into a masterpiece. Just like John Newton. You might know that he wrote a famous pamphlet arguing for the abolition of slavery in a way that only he could because he was both a slaver and a slave. And then he joined forces with William Wilberforce to abolish slavery in the United Kingdom. He became God's masterpiece. Somebody said, where people put a period, God puts a comma. We were dead in our sins, but God took all of our past and now uses it for his glory. 
And I'm going to close with a video example. A woman named Tana McGinnis, a friend of mine, she's the executive director of the local pregnancy resource center there in Santa Cruz. And you would expect her to be maybe some perfect prim church lady, very proper, right? Well, meet my friend Tana. Watch this. I feel like my life is an example of Genesis 50, 21, where Joseph says that what the enemy meant for evil, God turned to good. My family on my mother's side, they were immigrants and they became very wealthy, multimillionaires. So I grew up with money. Um, but inside the family, there was a lot of tumult. When I was 13 in the summer before seventh and eighth grade, I was molested by my stepfather, which really catapulted and changed my world. Started trying prescription drugs I would find in different medicine cabinets of friends' houses, running away, drinking, and um, having sexual activity. I would stay in abandoned homes. I became so hungry one time I tried dog biscuits. We stole the car and I got actually convicted of that, um, Grand Theft Auto. I got sent to Juvenile Hall at one point. I got sent to a, a group. Uh, shelter and then got sent to the boarding school which ended up being a cult. They actually did shut down three months to the day I went in. The person who headed it up got uh, arrested by police and had kidnapped one of the kids from the school. Somehow they decided a uh, mental institution, a private mental institution in Reedley, California which is near Fresno was this solution. I did get released after a year in the mental institution, so I spent from the ages of 15 to 16 there. I had a friend that I had met in class, and I didn't know she was a believer, um, and we would do things together, smoking and drinking and stuff, and I called her one day from the payphone, and I just said, I'm really depressed, and I want to commit suicide, and she said, don't smoke, don't drink, and come on over to my house. And she told me the gospel, and I actually opened up my heart and my life to Jesus Christ as my Savior. So I had met my boyfriend at the time. Two years after dating, when I was 19, we found out I was pregnant. I did find what is called a crisis pregnancy center. They didn't offer judgment. But what she told me was, there's Medi-Cal that will cover your pregnancy. So that was just the difference. That was like a beacon of light. And we had our daughter three months later and have been together ever since. When we found out that I was pregnant the second time, it was like, okay, we're, this is getting serious. We got married when I was three months pregnant. So I decided to stop drinking, to stop smoking cigarettes, to stop smoking pot and get cleaned up. And I started going to church. And that's really where my life started changing. So I, of course, had a real thread in there for pregnancy centers because of what I had experienced with my first pregnancy. And I started as a volunteer counselor once a week, and I loved it so much I went to two times a week. I would never have the heart and the ministry that we are doing at the center without having been through all those horrible things and been looked at as a loser. We see these women in a moment in their life when they're low, maybe really low. And there might not be anyone else there that would think well of her. Who does God see her as? God sees them for what potential could be. So we really want to love them unconditionally because if they even know one person cares and loves them, 
then isn't that going to lead to the next step, which is believing that God can love them for who they are, right in the middle of whatever it is, wherever they're at? From my unplanned pregnancy, we now have four children and 11 grandchildren, all because of what God did with that. What a story of God's amazing grace. But don't miss this. God saw an abused, traumatized, drinking, pot-smoking, hard-partying, juvenile delinquent, car thief who'd been in a mental institution and a cult and said, perfect, you're going to be my masterpiece. And God says that of you. No matter what your past, God puts a comma where others put a period. Where people put a period, God puts a comma. There is hope for you. There is grace for you. Now, I've given you a lot of information. You're like, well, what does this all mean? Summarize it all in a sentence, Renee. You know, John Newton, when he was elderly, he started losing his memory. And he said on some days there were only two things he could remember. You want to know what they were? That I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great savior. And in the end, that's really all you need to know. Would you stand with me? Let's close in a word of prayer together. And I want to address two people today as we bow our heads in a word of prayer. Just bow your heads, close your eyes with me. The first group of people is this. Maybe you grew up with all of this, but the wonder of God's grace to you got lost in all the noise somehow. Just in prayer, say, Lord, help me to be reactivated, resensitized to your grace all around me this week. Second group of people, maybe you're new to all this. Maybe you're not sure if you've ever did simply receive the gift. I encourage you right now, just receive the free gift of grace. Say, thank you, Jesus. I believe I am saved from death in love by grace for purpose. And I receive you into my life today as my Lord and Savior, then I believe that change has just begun in my life. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.